So please open up your Bibles to Exodus. It's been a while since we've been in Exodus. Uh, we're going to read in chapter 24. So picking up where we left off, Exodus 24, we're going to be reading verses 12 through 18. So Exodus 24, verses 12 through 18. If you're using the Pew Bibles, it's page 65. If you're using my Bible, it's page 103. All right, Exodus 24, 12 through 18. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua. Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. But on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud, and the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud. And went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This is the reading of God's word this morning. Let's pray and ask him uh, to illuminate for us. God, as we come before you, uh, we confess that your word is a lamp unto our feet. We need your word, Lord. We need it to open up our hearts, to expose us of our sins and our fears. And we need the comfort of the gospel, Lord. Please preach your word to us this morning. Please fill us with it, that we would come to you in faith and receive your word joyfully. Work in our hearts, Lord, by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So in, uh, uh, in Narnia, the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, as the four children in the book are learning about Aslan the lion, uh, who represents Jesus, the youngest child, Lucy, asks if Aslan, if he's safe. To which Mr. Beaver, who she's talking to, replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And then Mr. Tumnus adds, he's wild, you know. He's not a tame lion. God is not a tame lion. And we've seen that in Exodus, haven't we? We've seen God rain down hail and afflict Egypt with boils and with plagues. We've seen him send devouring locusts to destroy their crops, to cover the land in thick darkness. We've seen God destroy Pharaoh and his entire army in the Red Sea and arrive on Mount Sinai in thunder and in fire and lightning. We've seen that God is not tame. And if you were to sum up all these mighty acts in one sentence, it would be this. Our God is a consuming fire. And that's what we learn in our passage today. Verse 17, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring or a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. This is what the Lord is revealing about himself in this passage. And yet, it's incomplete. 
Because even though the glory of the Lord descends and dwells on the mountain, even though Israel sees that it looks like a devouring fire, and yet it's, it's still concealed by a cloud. God is revealing something about himself, but he's not fully revealing himself. He's revealing something, but yet is still concealed with a cloud. And out of that cloud, he calls Moses to ascend the mountain, to enter into the cloud and ascend the mountain and approach the glory fire. And when Moses does, when Moses approaches God in faith, the Lord gives him the gift of his word. So God is, is this mysterious consuming fire, yet he comes down and dwells on the mountain, calls Moses to approach him in faith and to receive his law, his word. Let's make that even more specific. Jesus is the consuming fire who came and dwelt among us and who calls you to approach him in faith to receive his word. Jesus is the consuming fire who came and dwelt among us and who calls you to approach him in faith to receive his word. So our passage today is the final passage uh, in this section of Exodus called the Book of the Covenant, which is Exodus 19 all the way through 24. So if you remember, the Book of the Covenant is organized like concentric circles. Right? There's an outside circle, and there's an inside, there's a right in the middle, there's a bullseye. The outside circle is made up of two parts. There's Exodus 19, and there's Exodus 24. And these two parts correspond, they fit together to form this circle, this concentric circle. They mirror each other. Exodus 19 and Exodus 24 mirror each other. In Exodus 19, seven times the word for descend occurs. God descends on the mountain. In Exodus 24, seven times the word to ascend occurs. Moses ascends. So you have mirror, mirror passages, one about descending and the other about ascending. The book of the covenant is ending the way it began with, with God coming down and Moses going up the mountain, but it's coming at it from a different angle because the focus in this whole chapter is about Moses and the elders ascending the mountain to meet God. That's what happened in the last passage. Moses and the elders ascend the mountain of God and they see God and they eat and drink with him. And in our verses today, the Lord says in verse 12, Come up to me, to the mountain, and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. In other words, it's time for just Moses. No longer the elders, no longer Aaron and her. Now it's just Moses is to come up to God, to meet him, and to receive uh, the tablets of stone. Now by itself... This is not particularly noteworthy. What is, what is noteworthy is that God is not simply inviting Moses to a nice hike. He is saying, come up to me. And then when we find what God, where he is, in verse 15 and 16, it says this, verses 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So God is not saying, come up to me. He's, coming, he's saying, come into the cloud. Come and meet with me on the mountain 
where the glory of the Lord is dwelling. But we have lots of questions, right? What is the glory of the Lord? Why this cloud? And why does God make Moses wait six days and calls to him on the seventh day? So we're going to answer some of these questions. But first, I want you to just imagine, just imagine being there. And imagine yourself from the perspective of Israel, right? The Lord's glory descends on Mount Sinai and the cloud covers or conceals the glory and the whole mountain. And verse 17 tells us that the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire or consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So now imagine you're standing at the base of Mount Sinai and you're looking up at it and it's wrapped in cloud and smoke. And inside that cloud, a raging fire burns so brightly that its light can't be hidden even by all the cloud. And then you watch as the small figure of Moses climbs up the mountain and enters into that cloud of consuming fire. So if you're Israel, what are you more likely to believe? That Moses will come back from his encounter with the consuming fire or that he's probably going to die? If you're Israel, you're probably going to assume that he's going to die. He's entering into a cloud of fire. And then he was gone for 40 days and 40 nights, verse 18 tells us. So as far as Israel knows, Moses is dead. And we'll pick this thread up back. We'll pick this thread up again in Exodus 32. So God isn't simply calling Moses up for a stroll and a chat. He's calling Moses to draw near to the burning inferno of his glory. So let's pause and ask one of those questions. What is the glory of the Lord? Or you probably think, and, and not, not in a bad way, that the glory of the Lord is, is some sort of brightness that surrounds him, that it's his splendor or his majesty. And it's true that God is glorious. But in Exodus 24, it says that it's this the glory of the Lord. And in Scripture, the glory of the Lord is a person. Verse 16, again, the, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. It doesn't say God came down and it was glorious. It doesn't say God was dwelling there and you could see how bright it was. He's saying the actual glory itself dwelt on the mountain. And that word to dwell, it means to settle, uh, to, to dwell or to live in a place, to make it your home. It's the kind of word that you would apply to a person. So who is this person? Who is the glory of the Lord? Well, the glory of the Lord shows up a few other places in scripture. The glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle in Exodus 40. The glory of the Lord fills the temple later on. And wherever the God is dwelling with his people on earth in a visible way, the glory of the Lord comes and dwells or fills. And this is because the glory of the Lord is the visible manifestation of God's presence. He is the invisible God made visible. Or as Colossians puts it, 
he is the image of the invisible God. Or as Hebrews 1 says, he is the radiance of God's glory. He is the glory of the Lord dwelling on earth. Well, who does that sound like? Who do you know in the Bible who is God dwelling with us? Who do you know in the Bible that is God made visible? The glory of the Lord come and dwelling with us. That's right. That's Jesus. That sounds like the Son of God. The Son of God is the glory of the Lord. He is God made visible. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is Emmanuel, God with us, God dwelling with us. And yet, even though he is God made visible, here in Exodus 24, the glory of the Lord is still concealed by a cloud. Why? Why does the cloud still cover the mountain and conceal the glory of the Lord, which is the Son of God? Because it wasn't yet time for him to be fully revealed. That would have to wait approximately 60 books later for God then to be fully revealed. I don't think it's actually 60 books. I forget how many books. But in the Gospels, when Jesus comes, he is not concealed by a cloud. He is the glory of the Lord made flesh for all to see. But here in Exodus 24, it's not yet time for all flesh to see him. But even though he's not fully revealed, even though Jesus is still going to be incarnated much later, that the Son of God is not yet incarnated in flesh and named Jesus. The Son of God is still here in this passage, and he's revealing something about himself. He's teaching us something about himself, and that something is verse 17. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire, was like a consuming fire. So as Hebrews 12 puts it, our God is a consuming fire. This means that the Son of God, who is the glory of the Lord, is a consuming fire. So what does that mean? It means that the Son of God is he who rained down fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah. He is the God who destroyed Pharaoh and his army in the waters of the Red Sea. He is, and, and of all the biblical prophets in all of Scripture, do you know who talked about hell the most? Jesus. Jesus talked about hell more than any other prophet in all of Scripture. So what does it mean that Jesus, the Son of God, is, not a, is a consuming fire? It means he's not a tame lion. It means he's not safe. And he's not safe because fire consumes anything flammable. And sin and wickedness are extremely flammable. It means that the Son of God is a threat because he burns away all of my fig leaves. And he leaves me with nowhere to hide. 
The Son of God is a consuming fire. That means he's a threat to my self-righteousness. Because his fire reveals all of my imperfections. He's a threat to my pride. Because compared to him, who is the glory of the Lord, I am nothing. He's a threat to my comfort. Because it is extremely uncomfortable to stand in the presence of God, to have your sin and idolatry exposed. So no, he is not safe. Our God is a consuming fire. So why then, why then does Moses seem so certain that he won't be consumed? Verse 13 and 14. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. Why is Moses so certain that he will return if God is a consuming fire and no mortal can stand in his presence, how come Moses is so certain he's going to return? Because he has faith. And why does he have faith? Because Moses has been here before. This is not the first time that Moses has encountered the God who is a consuming fire on Mount Sinai. Because in Exodus 3, Moses met the Son of God speaking to him out of a burning bush on Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. And yet the bush was not consumed. Which means Moses knows that it is possible to face God and not be consumed. And he knows that the only way to walk away from meeting with this God, it is not to meet him with stubborn rebellion. The only way to walk away is to approach him in humble submission in faith. Because Moses has already tried stubborn rebellion. In Exodus 4, not only did Moses give God a ton of grief um, about agreeing to go to Egypt. But once Moses actually agreed and was on the way to Egypt, we find out that he never circumcised his son, which according to Genesis meant that Moses had effectively cut himself and his family off from God. And in Exodus 4, God met Moses on the way to Egypt and sought to kill him. Our God is a consuming fire. And it was only through the quick action of his wife who circumcised their son right there that Moses' life was spared. But Moses learned something. Moses learned that the only way to approach God is in faith. This is because faith believes God's promises. Faith trusts that God keeps his word. Faith rests in the power and the salvation of God. Moses had faith that whatever God called him to do, even if that meant going up the mountain into the cloud of consuming fire, that God would equip him to do it because God, that's what God had always done. Moses 
had faith that even though he was going to face the consuming fire of the glory of the Lord, that he would walk away one way or another as God keeps his word. And indeed, the call that God gave to Moses was a call to come and die. Moses was going to be up on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And 40 is the number of trial. 40 is the number of testing. 40 is the number of judgment. For 40 days, rain fell upon the earth and flooded and killed all things. For 40 years, Israel wandered in the wilderness for their sin. For 40 days, Goliath taunted Israel. For 40 days, Jesus wandered in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. So for 40 days, Moses was going to be in the presence of the consuming fire of God. That's a call to come and to die. But by faith, Moses knew that even if he should die, God would raise him up again. By faith, he ascended the mountain, knowing that he would walk down the mountain alive. Because he knew that while God is not a tame lion, God is good. And this call to come to God and die is the call that Jesus extends to everybody. Whoever seeks his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will find it. Come, pick up your cross and follow me. The call that the Lord Jesus puts on you is a call to die to yourself. It is a call to come to him and face his consuming fire, which will expose all of your sin and expose all of your idolatry and expose all of your helplessness. And that will feel like dying. But there's two ways to respond to this call. There's probably other ways, um, but this is what I got for you today. The first way to respond to this call is to look at that and to run the other direction. The first way to respond to this call to come and die is to say, I can't, and to run. And whether that's out of stubbornness or fear, you hear the Lord's command to come to him, and instead of obeying, you run. Perhaps you run because you don't want to let go of your sin. Perhaps you love your idols too much to let them get burned. Perhaps you run because having your sin exposed is deeply uncomfortable and painful. Perhaps you run because you're afraid that if you approach Jesus, he will see how ugly and sinful you are and he will reject you. And so you run. But if you run because you don't want to let go of your sin, it's because you rightly know that once your sin is exposed, God will kill it. He must kill it. And that will hurt. 
And if you run because you're afraid that Jesus will see how sinful you really are, you're actually running because you're afraid to see how sinful you really are. You don't want to see how sinful you really are. So you run. But there's another way to respond to Jesus' call. And it's by approaching him in faith. Because faith knows two things. I am a sinner. And I need Jesus. And when you approach Jesus like this, not hiding your sin, openly acknowledging, Lord, I am a sinner and I don't deserve to stand before you. And I need you, Lord. Something amazing happens. It's not that it gets less painful. He is a consuming fire and he will strip away all of your fig leaves. He will expose the darkness of your heart. He will, you will see how ugly and sinful you are and how utterly undeserving you are to stand in his presence. But something else happens. You will see not just yourself, but you will see Jesus. You will see the God of purity and holiness. And his fire will strip away all of your sin. And you know what will be left? You. Standing before him. Purified. Cleansed transformed when you approach Jesus in faith his fire transforms you because when you come to him knowing you have nothing to offer when you come to him knowing that you are an undeserving sinner and that he is your only hope he does not reject you he draws you close and he destroys all of your sin. And he makes you new again. I want you to look at verse 16. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. This is the last question we asked at the beginning. We asked, what is the glory of the Lord? Why the cloud? Why wait six days and call Moses on the seventh? Is there something special about the seventh day or something? Did we hear anything about that in our reading of the law? Yes, we did. The seventh day is holy. The seventh day is a day of rest because God rested from his work of creation. So God makes Moses wait six days so that we get the point that something creational is happening. In other words, something good is happening. Something holy is happening. And what does Moses receive on the seventh day? Verse 12, come up to me on the mountain and wait there. God says, wait. For how many days? Six days. Then I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So what does Moses receive on the seventh day? He receives the tablets of stone, the law, the commandment, which means God, which means Moses receives God's word. 
And notice what the Son of God says here specifically about his law and commandment. In verse 12, I have written it for their instruction, for their teaching. In other words, his law is a good thing. God is not here subjecting his people to a burden of legalism, and he doesn't simply give his law just to reveal the guilt of our sin, although that's part of it. But if that's all the law did, then how could the psalmist say that the law of God is my delight? God's law is a blessing that we are to receive with joy. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. So on the seventh day, the Son of God, the consuming fire who came and dwelt on the mountain, calls Moses to approach him in faith, to receive the blessing of his law on the seventh day. So the creational thing that's happening, the good and holy thing that's happening, is the giving of his law. What exactly is this creative act that God is doing? Transformation of sinners. God's law, yes, exposes our sin and then kills it on the cross letting us walk away alive and renewed and righteous because our sin has been nailed to the cross. The legal demands of the law have been nailed to Jesus. And I get to walk away alive. That's exactly what happens when we approach, when you approach Jesus every Lord's Day. He is the consuming fire whose word is sharper than a two-edged sword. But when you approach Jesus in faith, believing his promises, his fire cleanses you from all of your sin and unrighteousness and leaves you holy and pure and sinless. But the only way this could happen is because someone had to be consumed. God's law cannot simply judge sin as a concept out there. Because sin is not a tangible object. Sin is what people do. So God's law has to judge the people. Someone has to die. And the gospel is the only good news in the whole world that states that the Son of God, the very glory of the Lord himself, became man and put on swaddling clothes and lived among us. And it's in Jesus that we finally and fully see God's glory in all of its revelation. And what do we see? We see a God who gave his life for a bunch of sinners. We see a God who, even though he's a consuming fire, laid his life down. Who died on the cross 
and was consumed by the judgment of God so that your sin can be fully and completely paid off and killed and dead and consumed. And then he rose again from the grave so that you can walk away alive. And he did that because he loves you. Faith believes this good news. Faith believes that not only is this true, this is true for me. Jesus died for my sins. And faith approaches Jesus clinging to these promises, knowing that I have no righteousness of my own to stand in. I have no way to hide from the consuming fire of Jesus. And yet, because I believe his promises, I have no sin to hide. I have nothing to hide anymore. I get to stand in before God, covered by his righteousness, pure and cleansed. This means that you get to come today and stand in the very presence of Jesus and be transformed into a new creation, sinless and righteous in his sight. And you can now receive his law, not as a burden, but with joy with grateful obedience, trusting Jesus, trusting his promises. But his forgiveness and his law are not the only gifts that Jesus has in store for us today. He also gives us a meal. And he gives us a meal because we, like Israel, like Jesus, like Moses, we are wandering in the wilderness too. We are in a period of trial and temptation. And we need to be fed. And Jesus offers today a meal to feed us and to nourish us on the way. So I'd like to invite the elders and Pastor Brett forward so that we can partake of the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for this meal. But we thank you for the greatest gift of all, the gift of your son. Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts the message we heard today, that you would help us, Lord, to not run from you, but to approach you in faith. Lord, we pray and ask that you'd help us to receive your word with joy, that we would count your laws a delight, that we would delight to practice it, that we would delight to teach it to our families and our children, that we would delight to tell each other about it, that we would delight to be together as your community as your people, united by Christ. Lord, work these truths in our hearts and help us always to look to Christ, the author of our salvation, in whose name we pray, amen.